Yippee-ki-yay, movie fans, we're back on the film frontier. I'm Felicity. And I'm Clarence. And today we have kind of an odd double feature, but we have a reason for that. The movies we'll be talking about today are The Tall T and An Eye for an Eye. We were lucky enough to see them at the Lone Pine Film Festival this year in Lone Pine, California, up in the Alabama hills, uh, where these films were shot and where many of of the kind of B-Westerns of the tens to the fifties i don't know is that <laughs> even beyond that i mean yeah yeah oh yeah i mean for sure it's yeah. been and you it's you, a location used in recent films as well mostly westerns but even beyond that movies like gunga dean and uh i think maybe the most recent is django unchained mm-hmm. who shot their opening scenes there but mm-hmm. yeah you've you've definitely seen the alabama yeah. hills before yeah in lone pine even in like star trek i think they've used it i think for so yeah yeah a location yeah but we were lucky enough to see catch these two films at the festival this year uh it's our first time attending yeah Yes. Um, but we had a great time. Yeah. So I think we'll just start with uh, The Tall T from 1957, uh, Bud Bedecker movie, if you want to intro it. Uh, yeah, The uh, the Tall T is about a small-time independent rancher um, who ends up being held captive along with an heiress and her new husband by three outlaws who attempt to ransom the heiress. My wife. Do you know who she is? No, boo. She's old man Gateway's daughter. So? So he just owns the, the richest copper mine in the territory. Well, don't you see? You've got the daughter of a millionaire. His only daughter. What do you suppose he'd pay to get her back? This was the second film that uh, Randolph Scott made with director Bud Bedeker. They made seven films together uh, between 56 and 60. Um, They became known as the renowned films because of Randolph Scott's production company with Harry Joe Brown, the producer, although he did not produce all seven, but it's just sort of a catch-all term for them. And yet, like, this and many of the other renowned cycle features like are beloved by like Martin Scorsese yes. and people like that like Tarantino, Clint Eastwood, uh, Sergio Leone considered them an influence. Yeah. In in a documentary Scorsese did on his love of American yes. film, uh, he said Bud Bedecker explored the bare essentials of the genre. His style was as simple as his impassive heroes, deceptively simple. The archetypes of the genre were distilled to the point of abstraction. The choreography of basic human passions was his forte. In the seven westerns he made with Randolph Scott, Bedecker always gave precedence to character over action. Yeah, yeah. It's a perfect yes, yeah. summary, I think, of their partnership yeah. in these films. Yeah, I, I wish mean, I could do a Martin Scorsese impression, because it sounds so much better <laughs> that in would his be, voice. Uh, you should work on that. No, I'm not going to attempt it. <laughs> the Tall T is a film that um, I saw in its first release. I must have been about 11 years old or something. But we knew there was something special about the picture. It had a toughness, a flintiness, so to speak and a spareness that uh, made it unique, particularly with the relationships of the characters and uh, Randall Scott's character and his relationship with Richard Boone. The film right before this, uh, Seven Men From Now, made in 1956, was the first film that Scott and Bedecker made together and kind of elevated Bedecker to a, a different level in his career. And these films made in such a short period, they're such tightly wound, you know, under 90 minutes mm-hmm. and they're really just great exceptional westerns i think and really made bedeker it made a name for bedeker he started out as a bullfighter right that's yes, kind of his background yes, isn't yes. it that's and that's sort of how he got into the movies was yeah. he was a consultant on the ruben, ruben mamoulian film blood and sand as, which was a bullfighting because he was like trained in mexico right? yeah, yeah yeah after college he, he was like a college athlete went to mexico and learned bullfighting and like fell in love with it 
like we all do after college. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a bullfight. And I've seen his films described as kind of bullfights in and of themselves. Yes, yes. And that explains mm. the kind of constrained nature, the efficiency, the... It's just tension inside of a yes, ring yes. sort of a thing is how his a lot of his movies are. And like the climax with... Uh, seven men from now between him and lee marvin is almost like in an arena it's mm, like a round yeah. area between the rocks that they're in it's uh yeah you but, get that feeling of and that imagery imagery really lends itself to film I yeah think, yeah it's a very natural sort of structural tension that's yes. built in there the qualities that were so interesting and, and was so striking in these pictures was the spareness of it the terseness the starkness the precision of the storytelling the emotional precision as well. Talking about this film in particular, The Tall T, uh, I believe it was released on a double bill by Columbia Pictures with Hellcats of the Navy, yes, starring yeah. Ronald Reagan and the future <laughs> Nancy Reagan. Yeah, that was the A picture. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, these films were low budget, like I said, under 90 minutes, all of them short running times. I think Columbia just gave them the money. I think Scott and his partner put up half the money, Columbia Pictures put up the other half, and they shared the profits evenly. And so they were just sort of left on their own to go do whatever they wanted to do. I don't think anybody was paying attention to anything they did or thought anything exceptional was being made. I think they really, you know, made some classic Westerns. And, and this was like Scott's, you know, the end of his career, really. Yeah. He, he finished up his career with these films. I think he was 59 yeah. for this film. Yeah, he did these and then came back and did Ride the High Country for Peckinpah and then retired yeah. for good, yeah. But he looks great. Yeah, he does. Yeah. yeah, I think he's great in this movie. Mm -hmm. We'll do more Bedeker westerns in, in later episodes. We'll do a deeper dive on that on those. But yeah, it's it's there. It's a great actor director combination. Mm -hmm. The two of them. There's a lot of advantages to working that way with a close collaborator. You you develop themes and ideas over time. You explore emotions, emotional states, and dilemmas, and and really you in a way develop a common language. Scott and Bedeker seem to grow much more comfortable with each each other on, on each new film. So there's a human interaction over time and all these movies taken together. You, know? and you can look at it, you can look at them that way as one long extended movie, the series of pictures they made at that time. Um, and that doesn't mean it's the same picture. It means that it's variations thereof, of themes and ideas. One flows into the other, usually in my mind. Um, it's, so when you see The Tall T, you see Seven Men From Now, you see Comanche Station or Decision at Sundown, you're not watching the film. In my mind, it's not like watching the film. You're spending time with these people. You're spending time with, a, in a sense, an epic story of this one character, Ride Lonesome, for example, with the vengeance. You're in this world. It's like a world that's created. And it happened to be over a period of maybe five or six or seven films. The Bedeker and Scott films were made at a certain point in time altogether. In a, in a pressurized time. They didn't make them over a period of 20 years, you know. And um, that's, it, it gave way to full expression. But here it was, um, working in a, a system where the films were released in a B status, and yet it was a very unique universe that was being uh, created. As we were talking about, I think this film also displays that sort of efficiency that mm -hmm. uh, Bedeker is known for. It's a very concise film. It's very tight. It mainly takes place over, I think, two days. Yeah. Mainly in one location. Mm. 
Um, it sort of starts on a, what do you call it? Like at the Stagecoach Depot. Yeah, the yeah. Stagecoach Depot. And then it, it sort of ends up at a ranch for a little bit. Right. You get a little bit of a town. And those are some great scenes, which we can talk about in a minute. Then for really the rest of the movie, they're trapped in the Lone Pine, Alabama Hills. Right. In a little hideaway there for the for the outlaws. Yeah, the bulk of the film takes place just out in the in the Alabama hills. Each character sizing each other up, and Scott trying to stay alive as long as he can. I guess we should we should say from the start that this is based on an Elmore Leonard short story. Yes, and I, I believe you said that a difference between the story and the film is this opening part, this beginning scene where we kind of set up the characters. Yes, and then Randolph Scott's character goes to this ranch where he kind of has to prove himself in order to win. He's trying to win a, a seed bull for his ranch that he has. He, he used to be the foreman at this ranch and he left to start his own spread, much to the foreman or the owner of the ranch's chagrin. And he's trying to get him back. And he makes a foolish wager of his own horse to to win this seed, if he can ride this bull mm -hmm. to a standstill, which he cannot. Because <laughs> um, he's 59 years yeah. old, probably. <laughs> But it's like a giant Brahma bull, I think, or something. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, he's got, doesn't stand a chance. And I mean, this is completely irrelevant to the plot, I think. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it sets up our characters. Yeah. But I sort of love it because it gives a more realistic look at the cowboys. Like, I sort of believe that all these men are actually doing real cowboy work. Right. They're breaking these horses. They're getting in there with the bulls and right. really, like, kind of getting down and dirty. It's also interesting that, the hero, Randolph Scott, he goes through like a lot of trials. He doesn't come out on top. He's yeah. embarrassed. Like the 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 other cowhands laugh at him when he loses his right. loses the bet. They make fun of him because he earlier in the film he promises to bring some striped candy back to the the, the little kid at the stage depot. So he's got that in his pocket mm -hmm. and and it's uh, sort of a prop that's always being handed yes, around. Yes, yes. You always wonder where the candy's going. It's also interesting his performance in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, in those early scenes, he's very affable. He's smiling. He's he joking. He never stops smiling. Yeah. It's the biggest grin I've ever seen. <laughs> and then once he gets kidnapped by the yeah. by the outlaws and finds out what they've done, he's like just... It's a sea change. Yeah. Just yeah. deadly serious, tight-lipped, tight, you know, just mm -hmm. such a minimal of emotions. And uh, I think... More I, of the, I think, the cowboy, the stereotypical cowboy yes. you think of in yes. these Western films or, yeah. or even in real life. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an interesting performance yeah. choice as well. <laughs> but somehow Randolph Scott's face, his presence, uh, appears to harmonize perfectly with the desert settings, the starkness of it. And we should mention that the you mentioned that Elmore Leonard wrote the original short story, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then Bud. Uh, Bert Kennedy, rather, mm -hmm. uh, was the screenwriter on this, and he invented the whole prologue. I think the story starts when they arrive at the stage depot. Yeah. And Bert Kennedy wrote a few of the other uh, Bedeker Scott films. They're they're I think notable. I think his the the, the ones that he worked on are are the the top of the of their collaboration. Yeah. He's one of your top names when you're talking about Western screenwriters. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, we we would be remiss not to discuss yes. him on this podcast, I think. But he might be another one we return to at a later date. Yeah, I think take, so. Take yeah. a deeper dive into his work. And then we could talk about uh, other cast members. Uh, Richard Boone plays Frank, who's the main villain. He's uh, partnered with Henry Silva and Skip Homeyer, uh, who would show up in Comanche Station, also for Bedeker. Frank is an interesting character. 
he sort of takes a liking to Randolph mm-hmm. Scott. Like, he, he hates the two guys he's with. Mm-hmm. He's their leader, but he doesn't, yeah. he, he can't stand them. He's ready to lose them and yes. trade them in for Randy. And I think he's sort of jealous of Randy. Would love life to be his friend, I think. Yeah. Like, he sees a, a kindred spirit. They're like two sides of the same coin. Right. And he asks him, you know, tell me about your ranch. Tell me about mm-hmm. your place. And I think it's like, oh, I wish I, he wishes he yeah. had that life and could go back home. But well, I think can't. he even says, like, Oh, one day I'll have that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but he's not going to have no. that. No. I think we all know <laughs> when he says that. But... His character is interesting. He's he's more personable than Scott, I think, mm-hmm. later, which is typical of these movies. The villain in the Bedeker Westerns is generally much more likable and affable than the, the Randolph Scott hero, generally. He has sort of a twisted sense of humor, like when Randolph Scott bumps his head coming out or the... Or, uh, Which I read was a real thing that happened. Oh, that, really? That Randolph Scott actually, just actually hit his head. <laughs> like, we'll, we'll keep it in. That's funny. Yeah. Or when mm-hmm. Marina Sullivan uh, burns her hand on the coffee pot. Uh, he he mm-hmm. cackles with delight at that. It's sort of a juvenile, mean sense of humor yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Henry Silva. I think yes. This was basically his first real feature film credit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the great and, and prolific Henry Silva. <laughs> And it's quite an entrance for his career. I think yeah. he, he's a standout in this film. He is. He is a stone-cold killer yeah. in this film, yeah. And such a unique look yeah. as well. Yeah, Henry Silva did a lot of westerns, a lot of, you know, worked with Frank Sinatra several times. Mm-hmm. Had a, a long career in Italian films uh, in the 60s and 70s and uh, in, into the 80s. And Yeah, he said in an interview in 1971, uh, funny thing, over here in America, they see me as a bad guy. In Europe, they see me as a hero. Yeah, yeah. A little bit so of like, one of those. yeah, a little bit like a Charles Bronson thing, mm-hmm. yeah. It's strange how those different international audiences have a completely opposite right outlook on some of our actors. Yeah, but Silva's great. I mean, he he is a yeah. standout in this, uh, uh, just terrifying. And and I mean, he murders a child. You don't see it on yeah. screen, but he's murdered a little boy. And, that moment was shocking to yeah. me. Having I had never seen this movie before we saw it this mm-hmm. year. It, they set you up to think oh they're not gonna kill the boy this is i think like you were saying a classic relationship between the the elder cowboy and the little boy who worships him the opening is almost like shane in a way because he sees him riding into the 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 stagecoach depot and and you know is excited to see him and and he's like a classic 1950s kid in a movie oh boy mister (laughs) can i have some candy And then when you find out he's not only been murdered, but just dumped in a well, it's just, uh, it's pretty, uh, the violence is pretty extreme in this movie. Yeah. Even but, though you don't really see it necessarily, but the fact that they're doing this in the 1950s is pretty... Uh, but some of the later moments as well are, yeah. were pretty shocking to me. Even as a, a modern oh, yeah. audience member, the deaths at, near the end, they're pretty graphic yeah. in, in what they display. I mean, yeah, Skip Homeyer gets a shotgun right under the chin. Uh, blasting his face off and and uh, Richard Boone gets shot in the face as well with a shotgun yeah. and it's just yeah Boone's death in this is actually pretty good when yeah. he's stumbling around to the cave and the the little cloth thing falls on him and covers his face as he tumbles to the ground yeah and then Silva also has an epic yes death scene I think it takes <laughs> about 30 seconds for him to stumble around right. and finally fall down but it's pretty great but I think you can attribute that to the fact that they were making second features for no money. Right. That no one was really cared what they were doing. Yeah. Like I mean, in, these are B movies. Yeah. You you want violence. You want the action. Right. If this had been an A feature, somebody would have noticed and said, wait a minute, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also touching on uh, Skip Homeyer's character. Yeah. I think he's supposed to be a very young and inexperienced. And yeah. I found that and I, I wasn't so sure. <laughs> he looks more like 30. I think he's he was 27. Yeah. 
And, but and he, he looks maybe older than that. I think they ask him how old he is, and he says, young, mostly. Like, he doesn't really know his age. <laughs> right. but And he's playing so innocent and naive, but, yeah. but uh, he looks a little too yeah. old for that. Um, Meanwhile, on kind of the opposite spectrum, you have Arthur Honeycutt, who is supposed to be kind of the old coot or whatever. Right. And he was 12 years younger than Randolph Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but he's he, your, your hero. Right. <laughs> But he looks like a grizzled old yeah. uh, uh, coot, like mm-hmm. you said. Yeah, and he's great. I, I love Arthur Honeycutt in anything. He's brings a lot of uh, mm-hmm. flavor to uh, any yeah. western. Yeah, and, and you have a couple of weird character names, including Honeycutt's character is Rintoon, Rintoon. and then the the head of the ranch is Tenvorty, Tenvorty, Mister Tenvorty, which is where I guess the title of the film comes from yeah i think it's supposed to be the nickname for the ranch right yeah i read that um they were originally going to call it the captives Mm -hmm. which is the title of the short story but someone had already registered a script with that name or something (laughs) so someone at columbia just came up with the tall t naming it after the ranch of mr tenvorty so i heard it was also called the tall rider oh yeah yeah although he doesn't do a lot of writing in it because he loses his horse yeah that's true (laughs) yeah he's actually like walking in with his saddle yeah yeah and yeah has to, has to hitch a ride. And then also, referring to the title in the trailer, it says, like, the T stands for terror. <laughs> so you got to love those marketing yes. people trying to spin this trying to... obscure title in <laughs> any way they can. What can we do with this? Uh, should we talk about Maureen O'Sullivan? Yes. As yeah. uh, Doretta Mims, the uh, the heiress who has got entered into a marriage that she knows is a sham. And they talk about how plain and ugly she, she she's is. She's scheduled to be an old maid. Yes, yeah. Um, but once again, I think you have an age discrepancy, discrepancy here. Yeah. She was 46, and like I said, Randolph Scott was 59. That's that's a little better for Hollywood it than is. what they usually do. I mean, but... even, like, honestly, to have a 46-year-old woman still have a leading part yeah. is a little bit... Yeah. It's a little bit unusual. Like the 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 female leads in the later Bedecker films definitely get much younger than yeah, that. I'm sure. Um, yeah, but it's funny talking about how plain she is, mm-hmm. and you know, and she's famous for being Jane, Jane in the yeah. Johnny Weissmiller Tarzan films, and right. and also the mother of Mia Farrow, with whom she appeared in Hannah and Her Sisters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I read though that this was her favorite film of her own. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. She has a good part. It's not as well developed or interesting as maybe Randolph Scott's part, but it's it's a, yeah. it's a good role. And there were a little, yeah. a few moments maybe got a little rapey. Yeah. A little questionable. Like the first time they kiss, a little bit forced upon her. Right, right. But she also later in the film, like, starts to stand up for herself and, and becomes the eagle to Randolph Scott. Like, yeah. he tells her to go hide or whatever for the end. And she's like, no, she's, I'm staying with, I'm you. with you. I'm doing yeah. this with you. Yeah. That was interesting. I yeah. agree. Yeah. Kind of talking about those those moments there, those turning points, kind of two-thirds through the movie, maybe. Mm. My thought when I was watching near the end, there's a moment where Randolph Scott's character is, like, kind of manipulating Henry Silva and uh-huh. um, Skip Holmeyer's characters and is starting to make them doubt their partner. Right. Frank. Frank. Yeah. The, the way I thought it was going to go, which I thought would have been perhaps more interesting, mm-hmm. was having Randolph Scott turn them against each other and then basically make them knock each other out oh yeah without ever even having to pick up a gun yeah like completely non-violently using his persuasiveness and maybe his trickery just to use them their own weaknesses right against each other right and it doesn't go that way he ends up having to to knock them out yeah and i mean like we said like that's what you expect with the b movie the violence right right the action but that would have been an interesting way to go as a viewer as where they just end up killing each other yeah yeah 
Yeah, that would have definitely been been interesting. Yeah, we'll do that in my remake. There you go. Yeah. And then you're ending, Frank rides back with the money and has a chance to get away, but can't, yeah. he, you know, that's his nature. He can't do it. And he comes back foolishly, like mm-hmm. a bull charging a matador mm-hmm. and gets, gets killed. Yeah. And then you have Randolph Scott and Maureen walking off together. And- yes. And Randolph says, come on now, it's going to be a nice day. Right. <laughs> That's a great It was a line. classic moment, yeah. <laughs> these, fil- these series of films uh, elevated Bedeker. I think they added to Randolph Scott's career. Like, these are really just tough, tightly put together. Just mm-hmm. come, you know, just no meat, on, no, no mm-hmm. fat, no, mm-hmm. just, you know, on the bone. It's just really well done. And I, I, you also have to imagine, I've read that this was like maybe an 18-day shooting yeah, schedule. Yeah, Like, they got to like, pump this yes, out. Yes, yes. So to to get this sort of any amount of time that we feel with them as an audience member, it's like they knew what they were doing. Yes, yeah. And perhaps they didn't even know how important these movies might be. You know, uh, what their legacy might I be. I can't I'm imagine sure they had any idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like making like factory films almost. Right, just churning them out. I mean, like they made seven films in five or five or six years or something yeah. like that. Uh, I must say that uh, younger people watching those films, when we saw them in the theater, even though we were used to, at times, lower budget B films, westerns that had a certain sweep to them, that were more conventionally made, and or the great westerns of uh, the great epic westerns like Shane and, and, and that sort of thing, here we knew there was something different going on. We had to pay attention, and it wasn't even a matter of having to pay attention. We were made to pay attention by the nature of the tension in the frame. And that had to do with, I think, his understanding of what each movement means. A couple of little odds and ends. The script written by Burt Kennedy, um, some of the dialogue from this film ends up in other scripts he wrote. Like uh, Silva's speech about having a woman in Sonora is used again in Return of the Magnificent Seven. Yeah. And then some of the dialogue was used in Six Black Horses, which was an Audie Murphy Western. And then also within the the Bedecker films, mm-hmm. he, they'll reuse dialogue from film to film. It's just interesting. They you'd you know. never know unless you had the internet and IMDb, yes. which they could have never imagined at the time, <laughs> right? To keep track <laughs> yeah. of all this, yeah. And Blu-rays and yes. streaming and but you I remember can watch it anytime. I remember seeing the Return of the Magnificent Seven and going, "Why? Well, I've heard that before somewhere." <laughs> You're just so embedded in the yes. Western. <laughs> And also, uh, another connection, uh, part of it sort of takes place, or it's mentioned, uh, Contention City. Yes. Which is like a, a important location in 310 to Yuma. Which is an Elmore Leonard story. Right. Yeah. 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 It's all the same universe. <laughs> I mean, people talk about the Marvel shared right. universe. The Bedecker, the Elmore Leonard. The... What? I think Elmore Leonard actually <laughs> does have that. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly in his crime films, or his crime novels, rather. I think yeah. characters show up from different books. Another little interesting thing I read was that... Uh, Scott and uh, and Richard Boone had worked together on Ten Wanted Men a few years earlier, mm-hmm. and supposedly during that shooting, uh, Scott handed him a script for a TV series that he had been offered and was passing on, and it was Have Gun Will Travel, allegedly, mm-hmm. and that you know became sort of Richard Boone's signature wow. uh, thing. So yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Like he would no longer be referred to as Richard Boone; he right. would be Paladin. Paladin, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, it's, it's a, a good nice story. story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want to move on to our next film? Sure, let's move on to An Eye for an Eye. Yeah. I'd play the Red River Valley. He'd sit in the kitchen and cry. An Eye for an Eye uh, from 1966. It's a former bounty hunter turned homesteader teams up with a rival bounty hunter to track down the killer, Ike Slant, who murdered his wife and child. 
Um, the two bounty hunters are forced to rely on each other when one's gun hand is shattered and the other is blinded during a confrontation with the villain. It, it is actually, I think, a good comparison to The Tall T in that both films are probably lower budget, yeah. shorter schedule. Right. Whereas The Tall T sort of did a lot efficiently. Yeah. An Eye for an Eye, I feel like, was less successful yes. in that. Yes. There were times when it felt more like a TV pilot. It or something, yeah. or a TV show. It definitely felt like a premise for a TV show, other than the fact, the way it ends. But it just seemed like sort of a gimmicky idea that one guy is blind but can still shoot, and the other guy sees and tells him where to where to shoot. Yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a terrible movie. No, no, no. It's just maybe poorly executed in places. Yeah. It's not as polished as, as what uh, you get with the tall T, for right. sure. An Eye for an Eye was directed by Michael D. Moore, not the uh, famous documentary <laughs> filmmaker. But he, he was a director. It was mostly known as a second unit director or an assistant director. He did direct a few features himself, um, including Paradise Hawaiian Style with Elvis and uh, The Fastest Guitar Alive, starring Roy Orbison. <laughs> Famed <laughs> yes. Oscar-winning actor Roy Orbison. We watched that not yeah. too long ago, and it's... That's not... Not going to be one of the Film Frontier recommendations. No. <laughs> Don't move, fella. In case you're interested, I can kill you with this and play your funeral march at the same time. An oddity, for sure. Yes. If you're into that, you might want to check, check it, it out. Check it out if you want to see Roy in this strange, odd Western. But, uh, but don't really expect to be entertained. No, I can't recommend it. <laughs> but Michael Moore spent most of his career, like as I said, doing Second Unit. He did all, all the first three Indiana Jones films. He worked on Never Say Never Again, Ghostbusters 2, The Electric Horseman, The Man Who Would Be King, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Patton, Sons of Katie Elder, Cool Runnings. He did a Ninja Turtles movie. I mean... His career was like covered everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and a lot of favorites are yeah. on that list. But I think unfortunately, the, those skills don't necessarily translate right. to his own directorial. I mean, we don't know what happened on this film. Maybe it's not a result of him. Right. But I feel like he doesn't necessarily have that directorial control you see with some yeah. of the, the better directors. It, it wasn't quite there. I think he did six directed six films. Uh, yeah, in his career, there was some like weird cutting and mm -hmm. shot choices there were things that i felt like broke some of the traditional rules of filmmaking and not in a cool experimental right, way like right. in a more amateurish way yeah which is a little bit baffling considering his his resume right and right you think he would have at least observed enough Yes, I know, but maybe he got better uh, in second unit directing as he yeah. went on. I don't, yeah. yeah. And this film was written by Bing Russell, uh, father of Kurt Russell, mm -hmm. and uh, Sumner Williams, who was also an actor. Bing was an actor. My dad came by the set with my, my mom, dropped me off. My dad was saying hi to a couple of the crew guys on the show, and then he was going to go on his way. He had to go to work, doing a show somewhere. And so Elvis um, was standing there, and he looked at me and went, I'm like, come here, and I went over and I said, what? And he says, is that your dad? And I said, that man over there? And he said, yeah. I said, yeah. I said, he said, can I? He said, I want to talk to him. I said, well, yeah, okay, come on. You know, I was like, go ahead, you know, talk to my dad. It's okay. And he comes over and he was so polite. And he said, uh, you know, Mr. Russell. And uh, he said, hi, Elvis, how are you? Nice to meet you. He said, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be forward or, uh, you know, I mean to be rude, but I've seen you in a lot of Westerns and I love the way you wear your hat. And I was just one I wanted to ask you, if, if I ever do a Western, would it be okay if I wore my hat that way? Wow. And my dad was like, well, thank you, sure, absolutely, I guess, you know, I'd be honored. 
Uh, this is their this is their only writing credit, which is interesting. Interesting, yeah, because I mean, it, like we said, it's not a bad idea. Yeah. it's kind of an interesting premise, and and maybe could have even been a more impressive film in different hands. Right. So I kind of wonder what happened to their writing careers. I wonder if they wrote it for themselves to star in, and yeah. maybe that just didn't work out. I guess we should mention the cast: uh, Robert Lansing and. Uh, uh, Patrick Wayne of the leads. Mm-hmm. Slim Pickens plays your villain. Paul Fix is in there. Uh, Struther Martin. So a lot of great Western character actors. Clint Howard, younger yes. brother to Ron Howard, is in it. <laughs> <laughs> Even then, I think he was kind of taking the lesser roles, yes. which is tragic. <laughs> and Ron's dad... Uh, Rance Rance. Howard shows up in there, too. But but Bing doesn't even make an appearance. No, he doesn't. You'd think he would have a cameo or something. Yeah, I'm not sure the history behind it. No, by golly, it's Robert Lansing. (laughs) (laughs) But Robert Lansing was a veteran TV actor. That applause means that you're very easily recognized. So is television um, a medium that you have appeared in a great deal? Oh, yes, I would say. I've done a little television, yes. Uh, you, you've seen him in Star Trek, High Chaparral. Uh... Appeared in 245 TV episodes. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure if you were alive <clears> at the <throat> time, you've seen him. He was in something you've seen. However, only appeared in 19 films. Interesting. Prolific stage actor as well. Oh. How about um, the Broadway stage? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, I've done a little Broadway here. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very accomplished. And I think I would imagine that's more where his heart was right, also. Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's awfully good to come back to it. It's uh, it kind of stretches you and you do the push-ups and it feels pretty good. You know, and a guy like Bob Lansing, who really can make a lot of money as an actor and works all the time or whenever he wants to, just about, goes off Broadway to work for $100 a week and it costs him that much at least to be on the East Coast to send his laundry out. Yeah, it also helps. He's he got to ha- like acting and he's got to be serious about it. It also helps he has a good commercial on TV, too. That, <laughs> yeah, that helps. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like a working TV actor, he yeah. worked all the time. Yeah. Patrick Wayne, uh, uh, son of John Wayne, obviously. This gentleman is Patrick Wayne. Patrick, nice to have you with us. Thank you. Nice to be here, Dick. At this point in his career, he'd pretty much only been in films either directed by John Ford or produced and starring his dad. The first picture I worked in, I was nine years old. Did you get the bug then, or was it just the lark, or what? Well, it was more like a summer job, I think. I, I worked in pictures from then on. About every summer, I worked in a picture. But I didn't really get serious about it until I was a junior in college. It's not his greatest performance. He's a little raw, I would say. Mm-hmm. Probably maybe due to the director. Like, I've seen yeah. I've seen Patrick Wayne. He's definitely not a great actor by any stretch of the <laughs> imagination. But I've seen him be a lot better in yeah. other films. I've been concerned with the, my acting career. It's interesting kind of hearing... A similar cadence to his father. You yeah. occasionally hear the the John Wayne the voice rhythm in, yeah. in his voice. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely there. But I don't know that he has the gravitas to pull it off, right? Like right. his father does. Yeah. Not that his father is the greatest of actors, but but he has a charisma or a persona a presence, or something, and he know? he can deliver a line and 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 play the parts that he plays. You know, to the to the nth degree. Whereas Patrick's more of like a pretty boy. Yeah, he doesn't have that tough. Look believability that, yeah. yeah he didn't get the look of his father yeah you know? did your father ever do anything to discourage you for from entering his line of work no not at all um he more or less let me just decide what i wanted to do he never tried to push it anyway but i think he was very happy that i chose to do it because uh, he thinks that i have a chance an interesting turn by slim pickens in yeah this one. playing the villain yeah. um pretty ruthless i mean the be- yeah. the opening is 
rough. Rape and murder and... And setting fire to the then right. raped and murdered... Um, Wife and child of Robert Lansing. Yeah. And yeah, he's he's yeah he's a stone-cold bad guy in this, mm-hmm. which is not something you usually see from him. I was into it. Yeah, he's good. Yeah. I mean, you can't go wrong with Slim Pickens. <laughs> and Struther Martin's in yes. there as a Born Weasley guy. Born in Kokomo, Indiana, oh, home I didn't know of my mother. Oh, how about that? <laughs> Shout out to Kokomo. <laughs> But Struthers always great. Paul Fix, who people mm-hmm. would probably know from countless westerns, as well as being the sheriff Micah on The Rifleman, mm-hmm. he's really good in it. You have the actress Gloria Talbot. Yes, uh, I think this was her last film. Lead. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. I think this was her final acting role. Hmm. Um, you would know her from All That Heaven Allows, the mm. Rock Hudson movie, and uh, I Married a Monster from Out of Space, sure. Outer Space. Sure. She did a lot of TV as well. She kind of looks a little weird. She's yeah, she has a different look. She yeah. was like. Crazy eyebrows and a real skinny head. Yeah. <laughs> if that paints That's a, a good... picture for our listeners. <laughs> That's a good way to describe her. And talking about her character, the romance storyline with her and Robert Lansing is strange, yes, to I, say the least. He's Yeah, it's really weird because he's on this vengeance trail because his wife has just been murdered. Mm-hmm. And right away, he, he's hooking up with her. It's I, I expected when, when she was introduced that, oh, Patrick, this will be Patrick yeah. Wayne's love interest, but not the case. Because yeah. he's the dreamy lead. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's the widower on on a vengeance <laughs> crusade. Right, but he's yeah. got time for romance. Yeah. Even though he's, um, yeah, it was a little, that was, that was poorly written. Yeah, I don't know why they did that. Yeah. That, that hurt the story, definitely. And I think it's also, uh, going back to the blind storyline, mm-hmm. I think that's some touchy waters, tricky to play. An interesting idea, again, yeah. like I said, but I think you have to play it right. I think you need a really good actor, and I don't know if Patrick Wayne is. I don't think can he was it. up to the task, or maybe he needed a stronger director. Um, to... Like it's almost like one of those like SNL sketches or something yeah. where you see a actor playing a blind storyline, <laughs> and they're clearly not blind. Right. And... Yeah. <laughs> and then the other sort of storyline or at least small plot detail was they make it they it is revealed that patrick wayne is pat oh, garrett yes Jr. yes he, it's totally just like thrown in at you that was a really strange story development i almost forgot about that yeah, yeah it's revealed that he's and he's ashamed of he's being using his son an alias. yeah or because his father's ashamed of him for being a bounty hunter mm-hmm. and yeah but he has it written in his boot right and then he gives a speech about when he dies, he wants he does want his real name on his grave and, and uh But completely unnecessary plot point. Yeah, it's, it felt like a totally different movie. It felt yeah, it was like where is this coming from and why why is it relevant to the story? Mm-hmm. It really threw the movie out of whack. Yeah. I don't I yeah, it was should have been cut from the film. Yeah. For all these little digs that we're taking at the movie, <laughs> I, I think we should point out the cinematographer oh, uh, yeah. Lucian Ballard, who is another sort of epic name in the in the industry more than 130 films in his 40 year right. uh, career as a cinematographer uh, also worked with bud bedecker mm-hmm. sam peckinpah on the wild bunch sure sure and ride the high country also i believe i think he was sam's preferred uh, mm. cinematographer but his career goes back to i think the 40s or something uh lucian a quote i love from ballard about his working relationship with Bedecker when, when they were making The Rise and Fall of Legs Diamond from 1960. <laughs> Ballard said, We wanted to go for an authentic atmosphere for the 1920s where the film was showing. So after seeing some of the rushes, the producer went to Bedecker and said, I thought you 
said Ballard was supposed to be a great cameraman. This looks like it was shot in 1920. And Bud said, it's supposed to look like it was shot in 1920. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> what a divide between the producer and the yes. creatives. <laughs> mm. Another little detail about Ballard. Uh, he's married to Merle Oberon. Oh, yeah. Who was involved in a near-fatal car crash in London, and a result of which Ballard invented a light which was mounted on the side of the camera to sort of provide a direct light onto the subject's face uh, so you could reduce the blemishes and wrinkles of the oh. subject. Um, and it was nicknamed the Obi wow. in honor of Merle, Merle O'Brien. Wow. It helped reduce her scarring from the accident. And then the Obi became widely used in the film industry. And it's wow. uh, his invention. I had no wife. idea. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Innovative uh, cameraman. Yeah. That sort of wraps up An Eye for an Eye. Maybe not one of your classic westerns, right. but an, an interesting viewing for us. We hadn't seen it before, and it's, I think, also interesting to see those sort of lesser-known, less successful films right. in contrast to the more successful ones, such as The Tall T, even right. though they weren't necessarily contemporary of each right. other. Right, and the Lone Pine locations look amazing, yeah. shot by Lucian Ballard, as we said. Um, so that was, you know, it's a nice touch. It's It's nice to look at. Yeah. So there's that. And it was certainly cool to experience in Lone Pine right. itself, along with Western fans right. uh, surrounding us. With um, a receptive audience. Yes. And, yeah. After the screening, they had some special guests in right. attendance. Um, we were supposed to have Patrick Wayne to speak about An Eye for an Eye, but he was unable to make it, unfortunately. Ooh. Instead, we had uh, William Wellman Jr., son of William Wellman right, Sr. Right. <laughs> and Robert Carradine, yes. the actor. Yes. Well known for The Long Riders. Um, the Cowboys, Revenge of the Nerds, of the Nerds. <laughs> Lizzie McGuire, <laughs> brother to David and Keith. Yes, yes, yeah, son of John Carradine. Yeah, Carradine spoke about uh, working with John Wayne on the Cowboys. William Wellen Jr., who was also an actor, talked about some of his experiences on Have Gun Will Travel and Rawhide. Getting to know John Wayne a little bit mm-hmm. as his father directed a couple of films with John Wayne. I mean, it was it was great to hear these stories from these these veterans of Western films. It's too bad we didn't get to hear Patrick Wayne. I would have enjoyed hearing his uh, thoughts on his career in yeah. that film. And the festival also continued into the rest of the weekend. We were right. just unable to make it to the rest. N- next year, next I'm year sure we we'll plan to, to more. be more, be there for more. Yeah. yeah, But it's a great festival if you can get out there. Uh, I recommend it. You can also visit their museum there, which has tons of Western artifacts, and it seemed like they were expanding their research yes. library as well. The, just yeah. a, a wealth of knowledge on the western movie genre highly recommended yes yeah. it's about a three-hour drive from los angeles mm-hmm. um and you can hike in the alabama hills it's yeah. beautiful great outdoor activities yeah. Up there yeah yeah highly recommended so if you're ever out that way check it out yeah and they host this festival every year so film frontier says check it out <laughs> but i guess that wraps it up for this episode be sure to like and subscribe guys <laughs> now i hate myself for saying that but uh it does support us if you rate and follow us and check us out on all our social media uh which you can find in the links so that's all from me felicity and me clarence and the spirit of struther martin adios